Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Ed Hulse, editor of Blood and Thunder magazine, moderates a discussion on the future of pulp collecting. It was recorded in 2007 at PulpCon 36 in Dayton, Ohio. Joining at our John Gunnison of Adventure House, Tom Roberts of Black Dog Books, and Neil Meekham of Girasol Collectibles. Here is Ed. Yes, we are going to be talking about the future of pulp collecting, which may seem like a very broad topic, but we're going to try and narrow it down as, as we go along, get a sense of, of uh, what we're doing, where we're going, who the collectors of tomorrow are, what they'll be able to collect and uh, what we should be doing to maintain, <clears throat> to maintain the viability of our conventions. Uh, my panelists, beginning here, you know them all anyway, but uh, I have to do this. John Gunnison, who is the president, founder of Adventure House, who is a dealer, a collector, and a publisher. To my left, Tom Roberts, Black Dog Books who is also a collector, a publisher, and would you call yourself a dealer? Depends on who's making a deal. More or less, yeah, depends on who's making a deal. And on the far end, another guy who a triple threat, Neil Meacham of Girasol Collectibles, who was also a dealer, a collector, and a publisher. Superior publisher. Superior publisher. Well, we won't get into that. Um, let's start with a question that I'll throw to the two dealers. John, maybe you can take it first. At any given pulp con, we're seeing a huge percentage of the pulps available for sale. We've got people coming from all across the country and from other countries. What is your sense of where we're going in terms of the supply of pulps? Have we exhausted what you would call the virgin finds, the you know original owner collectors that have been in attics or barns or basements? Are most of the pulps that we're going to be buying in the future, the new collectors will be buying, are they going to come from collectors who, who decide to get out of the hobby or who, you know, pass on? In some respects, I would think that that has already occurred as almost a decade ago. I don't think there are that many original uh, collections uh, coming out anymore. But, you know, it's that certainty in life, no matter what you say, you're wrong. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be something that will come out of some barn or, or farm in Pennsylvania that's been there since... Uh, 
public, but it was virgin material. But I agree with John that we're not seeing very many collections that were previously not in the hands of a known collector. I think one of the problems there is that it's been so many years since the pulps ceased publication that in order for somebody who bought them at the time to still have them, that means that a couple of generations of that family have to have kept them in some fashion or other and probably moved them from spot to spot. Usually what happens is the house gets cleared out at one point when the folks or the grandparents are gone and that material isn't being kept. So I don't think we're going to see too much more of that sort of thing in the future. Maybe a few here and there. In the last 10 years, I would say we've had two, maybe three tops significant collections, including this one, that were what I would call unknown material. So I don't see that we're going to see that happening a lot in the future. Tom, as somebody who publishes reprints, you're getting into some pretty esoteric stuff, like uh, your latest volume, the Singapore Sammy volume, some other things. Are you finding customers who are coming to you, especially newer collectors, um, less experienced or advanced collectors, who are looking at this stuff and saying, gee, I, I, I didn't really know about this stuff. I knew about the shadow. I knew about Doc Savage. I, didn't, I haven't heard of Singapore Sammy before. You think these guys are being stimulated by the reprints to collect poems? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. The... Uh there's been such a proliferation of the hero material since, what, 1964, 1966, whenever Doc started coming out in paperback, that uh, many of the other avenues were uh, neglected as far as reprint forms. Um, many of the Western authors or some of the mystery things came out in paperback form in the 40s or the 50s, but a lot of the, the ongoing series characters that were not prevalent or were big name at the, the time uh, when paperbacks started taking off were, were overlooked entirely. So, so I do think that it, it you know, draws more people in or gets more people to look and, and think outside of just the um, typical venues or typical genres that they've searched before. Mm -hmm. uh, this is another one I'll throw to the two dealers. John, you first. Uh, of, of the people who, who are relatively new collectors who come to you, are there any discernible trends? Are there certain titles or, or types or genres that, that newer collectors are flocking to? Um, or is it the standard kind of? No, you know, it's, it's been pretty much the, the same thing um, in the respect that a lot of the newer collectors are coming for the more titillating titles, you know. The, the number of people who want to buy every single saucy movie and wants to buy all the, the weird menace material. And there's only so much of that to go around. Um, I'd like to sort of piggyback a little bit on the reprint material because um, both Neon uh, and I, um, well, Jerusalem and Adventure House, let's put it that way, do a lot of reprint material. But what I really like to see and what I'm really hoping is happening is that people are, or who are buying these things are reading them. Where so many of, of, um, of us that uh, buy pulp, or I've seen buy pulp, they're buying them just because they want that piece of cover uh, art, and they're not really that interested in the material within. And there's some really great fiction being published. Unfortunately, um, when Diamond comes to me and says, okay, what's your next three replicas for this month? Uh, and I give them something like Far East Stories and uh, Phantom Detective and, uh, you know, some other detective title. They go, okay, well, we don't want the Far East. We really, unless the detective is, is, is a weird menace cover, I don't have any interest. But Phantom Detective, that's great. And if I'd like to go, okay, well, great, okay, we'll publish one for you, and then we'll publish some for, for me, and then we'll publish some more for other people. And it is kind of a, a, a fun to see that the material that I sell mostly in the in a room like this will be the stuff that 
you don't normally see, the Far East adventures, the, uh, the, the plane adventure stuff. The spices don't sell as, as well as, as some of the more generic stuff. And I know people are reading them because they're certainly not buying some of those just for the covers. Yeah. I think, uh, the sorry, I think the difference there between newer people coming into the market there and the established market is that the newer people are only drawn in by a significant character or something that they have heard of from some other source. Whereas the people who are interested already are looking for some of the more unusual, more esoteric material that you don't ordinarily see, but they perhaps wouldn't be able to pick up in original pulp form. Sure, I mean, Doc Savage for me was my first, you know, and I, I, you know, I have tried to pass on my love to Doc to my two youngest boys, and, uh, you know, we were reading them for a while, and it was <laughs> for them, but, you know, yeah, you know, so I guess it's, it's, it can't be do, a, do it by, uh, by force, but uh, you know, yeah, you start somewhere and then you just start moving and branching out. Yeah, we, we do want to concentrate on the future of pulp collecting, but I think, because uh, we did a panel on reprints last year, for those of you who were here, but I, I think it's inevitable that the reprint question is going to come up because it's turning out to be a point of entry. It's no longer a question of somebody coming to a pulp con cold or some other convention where they sell pulps in smaller numbers and just immediately, I think, collecting pulps. I'm not really sure there's too much of that right now. I think that the reprints, especially because they're easily available and because they are going to comic shops, mm -hmm. I think that's becoming the point of entry rather than the guy who just comes to a convention and picks up an old, you know, flaky magazine and says, hey, this is pretty cool. Tom, wh what is your sense of that? Do you think that's... Yeah, I think that's very valid. Uh, I, you can walk into comic stores anywhere across the country now and find some of the reprints that, that either Neil and Lee or, or John have put out or with uh, Tony Tolan reprinting the stuff now with the uh, Shadow and Doc things. And, uh, you know, people 50, 40, 30, 20 years old that have never experienced it have at least have a venue or a, a means to now at least be uh, introduced to it in some manner. Uh, for so long, comic shops have specialized just in what they specialize in, and over the last 10 years, as the comic market began to decline, even a little longer than that, they had to branch out to include toys and electronic games and Game Boys and action figures and things like this, so the, the comics market has had to expand to bring new merchandise in to keep a larger audience in as the comic um, production imploded, basically, due to the publishing saturation point. And so I believe introducing all this material whether people read it or whether they buy it is uh, the consumer choice, but at least it is there and the option is there should they choose to pick I, it up. I think though one of the biggest problems that we're seeing, which even most optimistic of us probably have to agree with, is that we are not seeing any significant volume of new collectors coming into the market for pulps themselves. We get the audio guy coming in, that sort of thing, but we are pretty much filling want lists for existing customers and people who are already in the market we're not seeing that replacement generation of future collectors. And if Pulp Hobby is going to continue for any projected length of time, I think that's going to be the key point as to whether we see that or not. The reprints are reaching another number of people, but they're not necessarily being turned on to original pulp buying. They are buying reprints that they're interested in. So I think there's a little bit of a problem. I think you're right, and it's, and it's a good segue to, to the next topic I want to get into, which is how to attract some of these new people and where we have to, to look to find them. Um, I, I was very, I was struck a, a month or two ago, we were at a meeting of our little pulp club in New York that gets together once a month, and Bob Lesser came in with a book he had just picked up that Jess Nevins wrote, which is a catalog of pulp holdings 
by um, institution, by educational institutions. And I was amazed to see this book, which is 200 and some pages, loaded with tiny type, you know, nine point type, of all these universities with the collections that they have and lists of, of what they're looking for. It, it, it's amazing to me. It seems as though practically every university in America that has a pop culture studies uh, segment of their curriculum seems to be collecting pulps and or things like dime novels, story papers, even paperbacks. So I'm wondering, and, and I'm just throwing this out, and guys opine as you, as you wish, should we be making, and I, I'm using we by the way, when I say we during the course of this discussion, I'm not speaking specifically of us or of you, or, but in general I'm speaking of we as, as hobbyists. Should there be some kind of significant outreach to the academic community? To, now I realize that they're not hobbyists, so they're not necessarily, they wouldn't necessarily come to a PulpCon you know, to buy stuff and to debate the relative merits of, you know, Norval Page versus Amal Tepperman. But it may be, are we overlooking something? Should we be trying to get these people here to buy homes and to swap and to get more involved? What we need primarily from them is they should buy an SF Digest from the 60s and 70s because we really flip up on those. And it would take up a lot less time at our auctions too, by the way. I, I think there's merit to the libraries making it available to people who are unaware of it, who want to get turned on to it in free days and then would take up collecting. Whether they would buy significant amounts of stuff or not, I'm not sure is really the issue. It's are they going to turn other people onto the hobby by making that stuff available in those institutions? As opposed now, to just archives. Just buying it archives. Yeah. Now, if that was the case, then yes, we would possibly benefit from that. Whether or not they would be lured here or not, or whether they would want to spend the funds to come and do something like that, I don't know. The Merrill collection in, up in our neck of the woods, they do have a significant collection, but they buy stuff, but they don't go anywhere to do it. If it doesn't come to them, they're not interested. So they're not going to expend funds from their budget to go chasing this sort of thing to make it available to other people. John, I mean, you, you do a lot of business. I mean, have you ever been approached by major educational institutions? No, and I can only think of uh, the more recent situation with Bill Blackbeard, who actually actively had to go out to find someone to buy his big newspaper and, and um, his pulp holdings. Um, and a lot of these institutions don't want you necessarily to sell them to you. They want you to donate them to you. Yeah, they, because some of these libraries, they want to use that as a form of, of um, fundraising because what goes in the front door sometimes goes out the back door um, if it's something they don't really want. Yeah. Well, I, Sorry, I also think that with some of those institutions, people would use them who are already interested in the market to research something or to look up something esoteric that they don't have. I don't know that necessarily people who are unaware of it will be turned on by it being available in those reference libraries. So it's not the sort of stuff that's on the shelves. It's in a segregated reference area. You have to request it, which virtually means you already have to know that it's there and that you want to see it. So I'm not sure if they would be a big influence on us or not. Tom, you have something to add to that? Um, no, I was just thinking more in a grand scheme of things, I suppose, for uh, dissemination of information in the future, that if some of the material isn't archived in institutions that are available across the globe, around the globe, basically, uh, you know, 30 or 40 years from now, there will be less information to be shared in, in a sense. The uh, universities, while they may not be bringing anything to the marketplace, may be allowing uh, more material to be reached or researched in the future. Um, 
I don't think of 1930 as being old, not that I was here in 1930, but if we buy a 1930 or 1935 magazine, I don't think, a lot of us think of it as being an old piece of equipment, but if you bought an old car, if you bought a movie from 1935, you, you begin to look at the fact that it was, you know, 60 to 70 years ago. Yeah. So I believe a 50 to 70 year period is probably what a lot of institutions would look at as material that enough time has passed now, we need to begin archiving or capturing this point of our uh, uh, history to maintain for future generations. So. And, and I think, I mean, in, in a very real sense, it's, it's uh, as much work as the institutions are doing and the, the awareness that they have and the, the scholarly effort that goes into some of these pop culture, uh, you know, a curriculum, you can look at some of the stuff, I can't believe some of the stuff that they're teaching, even in the adult, uh, you know, the night adult education classes, they get into pretty, what I think are some pretty esoteric areas of pop culture. But we're still left with, with, with the question of, where are we going to find, if not the next generation of pulp collectors, at least replacement units, let's say, of, of pulp collectors? Well, it's like John's finding and trying to read on to his kids there. You can't sort of force people into it. They have to want to take it on on their own. So I think the only way we can really do it is you try to pass on your enthusiasm for the hobby and the material in general. And as much as possible, if we can promote the hobby, if we have things that are available to the general public to see through articles, through magazines, through that sort of thing, if it gets on TV here and there, get people excited a little bit that way so that they seek out the venues that are available or they get on the web and they start looking and they want to take it up themselves. Yeah. And piggybacking on that idea is, and I can only speak for myself, and a lot of people who actually I've talked to, yes, Doc Savage in the 60s, Titillated my imagination as a young boy, and I started reading it. And I really appreciate the fact that Tony was able to get Doc Savage and Shadow out, and that Nostalgia Ventures is paying the big bucks because what's happening is that Shadow and Doc Savage are being placed in these brown um, cardboard standees, and they're going in the front of these stores, Barnes and Nobles, and, and uh, Borders and stuff. But you got to understand. They have to pay to get that stuff there. Those bookstores aren't going, oh, you know, this is really quaint, nice material. We'll just put it right here by the cash register or by the front door so that people buy these things. Oh, no, Nostalgia Ventures is paying them to put that product there. And I can only hope that as people come in, and, and I know the Barnes & Noble near me, they're half gone. I mean, there, there's gaps. There's one copy, in, in one case, with, with something that was brand new, there was four copies there, and something that was older, there was only one copy. So that tells me someone's buying them, someone's reading them, and I can only hope that that will generate a little bit more interest. And Tony says, when he mentions Tony, he's talking, of course, about Anthony Tolan, who's, who's uh, supervising this latest group of Doc and uh, Shadow uh, reprints. To me, it seems to be, there's great irony in the fact that in some respects, Pulp and pulp fiction, which is of course a term that, that we all know has been really corrupted to, to be almost anything. I mean, you know, there are guys on, on eBay selling lesbian paperback novels as pulp fiction. But um, yeah. But if you if you if you go to a Barnes and Noble and look around, pulp our pulp is seeping back into the culture. There's hardly a year goes by that classic science fiction pulp doesn't come out in a new paperback edition, even as a mass market or as a trade paperback. Yeah, we're you know. straying slightly from 
a portion of the core of the question is that although people are buying reprints, is that turning them on to pulp collecting in terms of the original? Right, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that there's an answer to this question. I mean, that's what we're going to try and get to, and, and we'll have to pause it again. Where do, where, do the, where do they come to? What do we have to do? Indeed, is there anything we can do to engender a love of the pulp magazine itself as a cultural artifact, as a collectible, as something to be cherished as well as enjoyed for its content? What can be done, if anything, to get new people into the hobby? Is, is, is it something that we do kind of as a group? Are there uh, individual strategies? And, and this is one of the, the reasons why we're going to throw it open later for ideas, by the way. Um, my, my own view, and the reason that I want to discuss this particular topic is because some of us worry about the, the continued viability of our conventions. We worry about declining membership. And we're, we're trying to figure out ways to, to boost it, to try and get more people in. And, and my feeling has been that PulpCon is not a huge monster group. It's not like a comic convention that has thousands of people. You know, it's a group where we talk about hundreds rather than thousands. And it's a group that tends to be very knowledgeable, very specific in, in its areas of expertise, different guys specializing in different books and characters and authors. We don't really need to get a huge influx, I, I believe. We don't need to get a huge influx of people to keep the convention viable. I mean, I, it seems to me that if we can get a couple of dozen new people a year, you know, that would offset the, the, the natural attrition, uh, we, we'd probably, you know, get back to a, a pretty healthy state. But how do we do that? What can, what can we do? Um, well, part of that problem is, is something that I, I feel pretty strongly about is that um, if you are a cult collector, you have to have patience. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of comic collectors who have any money have that same sort of patience. If they want to buy, if they've got the money and they want to buy that Spider-Man number one, $60,000, yeah, just write a check. You know, I'll go to San Diego, I got 12 different shop copies to choose from. You know, if I want to buy a Superman number one, I go to San Diego or Chicago Comic Con or whatever, WonderCon. And you start looking through the room and you got one, two, three, four choices to make. So, but in Paul, I can't tell you how many people have walked up to me or written me emails or, or phone conversations. People are trying to get into the uh, hobby and saying, um, can I send you a one? Well, sure. What is it that you want? Shadow one, dot one, weird one, uh, October 1912 all-story. And my eyes are just rolling back in my head going, okay, yeah, you and everybody else. And, but you have to have patience. And, and I think for you to be a pulp collector, you can't just automatically think, you know, um, I'll just go to the next PulpCon and, and buy that, that Batman copy of Spicy Mystery. Um, it just doesn't happen. And I think we have an attrition of pulp collectors because, one, the prices have gone up, but two, the, the amount of product has gone down which means that there are a lot of people out there buying this stuff, whether they're buying it off of eBay or off of sales lists like mine, it, it doesn't come back out. Um, the other people get bored because they can't find it immediately. Oh, really? You think that's a big part of it? Oh, I, I know it's a big part of it, that there are people who just get bored and, and I, suddenly, you know, two years later, I'm getting a phone call from the same person who bought some stuff for me saying, you know, I'd, I'd like to get rid of stuff, you know, I, I can't, that's a dance, <laughs> uh, that uh, if, if, um, 
if, if they can't collect, if they can't complete their run of Doc Savage uh, in, in uh, you know six months or a year, they're, they're bored. Are they reading them, John? Oh, hell no. Of course. Well, <laughs> there's... But that, that reading doesn't necessarily... I got to tell you, I, I completed my run of Doc Savage, and I have not finished them. I mean... Have you read other books? Oh, of course I've read other books. At least three, four, maybe five more. <laughs> Tom, let me get you back into this. As most of you know, Tom is also a tremendously talented artist, as, as well as a publisher and all the other hats that he wears. There's a lot of interest in pulp art, too. Now, Bob Lesser, who's been doing these pulp art calendars for Barnes & Noble, those calendars are so popular, not only are they selling out, he's not only finished with his 2008 calendar, they're already working on the 2009 calendar. Uh, he recently sold transparencies of his paintings uh, for a new trade paperback series of Dashiell Hammett reprints. Um, it seems to me that there's a, a group of people are, are, is it possible for us to attract people through the art itself? Do you think that, that with all of these images out there, iconic images in many mm -hmm. cases, do you think that that's a way of possibly grabbing people and attracting them to the fiction? Yeah, I do, actually. There's one point um, I brought up in a previous panel that we talked about, which kind of has fringe bounced on several things here. As we become a global market and we continue to ship our product internationally, there's an atrophy of a course product on the floor at, at venues like this. And um, in attracting additional people interested in the field or additional customers, whether you're a dealer, um, I know that some of the information that I field, in addition to some of the places that I ship to, are no longer within the United States. We are rather cloistered or clustered in the isolation that we actually feel as a pulp community and not single anybody out or make anybody feel awkward, but let's see, we have Neil, we have Lee, we have George, we have Don, Tony Davis. we have George, Tony Davis, Tony Davis and uh, Dwight, that all come from Canada. Hey. Is Alistair in here? I'll Al I'll take over. Yeah. No, Alistair comes all the way from Great Britain. Some of the information I feel through through emails and questions and things, I, I get people that write me from Spain. Uh, I have a collector in, in Norway that writes all the time wanting information. I have a collector in Germany that's always looking for things or is on the, the bulletin board and things. And so, you know, attracting new people, instead of it just being in our continental little society, even though we think of Pulse as being an American idea, as, as our mass communication expands, more of our people that are interested are not necessarily in a position, I mean, you know, why do people drive all the way from Toronto? Because they don't have anywhere else to go to a pulp convention. You know, why does Alistair or uh, uh, Mike Ashley or people come all the way well, from England? Well, I think, I think the yeah. art there has a lot of appeal because it's the first thing you see when you're collecting anything. It's never been accessible. So, yeah. So, it's never been accessible. Yeah, the art, the art draws a lot of attention and it has more impact. A lot of people are never going to read the stuff they buy or not all of it anyway. So I would agree that the art is is a main draw. The question is, can you use that exclusively or primarily to draw new people into the hobby? It would depend to some extent. Are we looking for people who are just going to buy stuff because they think it looks neat? Or are we looking for people who are really going to get immersed in the hobby and want to read the stuff as well as enjoy the way that it looks? Well, yeah. it goes back to the movie poster mentality in reference to the art. The art will immediately attract your attention as to whether you see the movie or not you know, or whether you read the book that the art is on, but at least the art is an immediate reactionary impact 
upon the, the viewer. So it will attract attention, and then it's a subjective matter for I, individual follow-up. Another point I think we should make is that there is a, a dual-track, a two-track uh, approach here because there is a whole subculture of people. I don't, I don't know how to how to quantify it, but there are there are a lot of people who've gotten into the hobby via eBay who will not necessarily come to, I say they won't necessarily, maybe they would come to a convention if they knew about it. But there are certainly people, I mean, I sell Blood and Thunder on the internet to, to many, many people that I never see at a convention. It hasn't occurred to me up to now to, to include promotional material about our conventions to people who buy from me via eBay. But it may be that in the interest of trying to get more people here, that, that um, and I, I hate to use this word because I, I don't want it to sound too business-like, but I mean, it, it may be that as a group we have, and again, I'm using that we encompassing all of us. Yeah, that we may have to, to think more in terms of marketing our convention, of, of letting people know, since there are dozens if not hundreds of collectors who are buying pulps on eBay, and real pulps, not just reprints or fanzines, but, but actual pulps, it may be that if we could do a better job of letting those people know that there are places like PulpCon and like the Windy City Show and like the Toronto Show and Rich Harvey Show in New Jersey, maybe there's some way, and I'm not sure I know how to do this, but there may be a way that, is, that those of us who are active in the hobby can market the, the convention, the availability of, of venues like this where like-minded people get together. Uh, I think that may be the future. We may have to be more aggressive. I mean, I, I won't say, let, let's pose that as a question rather than a statement. Uh, uh, John, what do you think about that idea? We'll work down. Well, actually, I've got a question for, um, if I'm going to put Randy Cox on, on, uh, on the spot. Randy, I know he's uh, editor of the Dime Novel Roundup, and uh, he's been around long enough to see what happened to the Dime Novel collectors who just started to dwindle away. Was there anything that the Dime Novel collectors were trying to do to keep their, their hobby viable? I don't think so. Uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing official. There's always somebody who will come along and find out about something and think again because of the covers and think this is neat. And of course, I, you know, one of our subscribers is a very enthusiastic collector uh, of Dime Novel story papers. Building up a very large collection over the last few years, but I don't think there's a, no. There's never been a concerted effort. We just want the closest we came. I think is when we started having the sessions at the Popular Culture Association because every year because we get people who would, who were collectors who would then come and uh, talk about their favorite authors, Edward Ellis or, or whoever. But I don't think there's ever been anything. And, and as the, even in the 1930s, in Dime Novel Roundup, there were articles and comments about, you know, is the collecting of Dime Novels dying? Well, not maybe it wasn't, but uh, it's just nothing you can really track. You know, uh, that may be part of it, too. I mean, and again, all of these. Solutions. I mean, to the extent that we can call them solutions in terms of marketing ourselves and our hobby to, to people who have an interest in the fiction but don't know about us. 
They, they all involve a level of work and commitment that some people might find off-putting because after all, this is a hobby for most of us and the conventions are, are not just uh, places where we buy and sell pulp but where we, you know, it's like an, an extended family reunion where we all get together and we share our, our personal lives and, you know, we talk to the spouses and talk about the kids and the grandkids and whatnot. So it may be that, that I'm talking about a level of commitment that some people may not want to be in, involved with, but my own feeling is that we may have to get more active. Uh, it, it could be, for example, there was a, um, a Lovecraft seminar in uh, Providence earlier, this a couple months ago, I believe. I'm thinking, wouldn't it be nice if we could convince some college that has a, a, a vibrant popular culture studies to have some kind of pulp fiction seminar and have representatives from, from PulpCon, uh, I, I don't mean necessarily the committee, but collectors or dealers or whoever, come and speak and, and, and talk about and, and say, yeah, well, we have this group. We get together every summer in Dayton, Ohio, and we get together every spring in Chicago. I mean, that might be a good thing to do. I'm not, I don't know how we do that. That would probably take a, a lot of monitoring of, of events like that or even proposing them to some institutions. Well, it would also be nice to have someone go there and talk uh, authoritatively about pulp that they aren't boys' lives and they're not uh, you know, paperbacks from the 1960s, but you know, what a pulp really is. Well, let's see. I mean, is there a consensus on the panel here, starting with you, Neil? Do you think that we need to be more aggressive about marketing ourselves, or do you think that that would take some of the fun out of the hobby and turn it into something that's, you know, go somewhere we're not prepared to go? I don't think it would necessarily detract from it. I'm not sure how effective it will be. To a certain extent, I think the people who are going to become interested in cult collecting are interested in some fashion of it or in some area that relates to it. Most of us either got into it through the paperbacks or through comics or something like that. I'm not sure that presenting it to the public at large is going to get a lot of people excited about it. So I'm not sure that that's really the route we're going to go. I think we need to concentrate more in terms of promoting it through related activities like comic collecting and comic shows, fanzines, other popular culture events that we can maybe tie into. But whether we're going to reach a broader audience than that, I don't know. And again, we get back to the same question where the pulps more than anything are a very delicate balance of supply and demand. Unlike comics, as John was saying, you can have virtually anything you want with comics if you're willing to pay for it. Pulps are not quite the same. So yes, we do need new blood in, but we don't need masses of it necessarily because we couldn't sustain their interest. So we're in a little, little in a rough spot there. Tom, what do you think? I think what, regardless of what avenue you took to get to the prom, we all came because we started reading. And uh, I think the people that maintain it are there because they're, they're reading and they're not investing, which separates from other um, collecting, uh, you know, interests. Um, I just basically, I would just basically second what Neil said. I don't really think I can add much more to that. As long as people continue to read, that would be the way to promote it. And, you know, whether it's a um, self-responsibility, like, I don't know. Global warming, it's all up to each of us to do our own part. Yeah, you know, you know I mean, know. I think realistically, too, we have to be aware that, that to promote the thing in general, in terms of going to places to do lectures and things like that, is good in principle, but who's got the time and how do you afford doing it? So, yeah. unless you're going to be paid to come down, or at least you can have your expenses covered, none of us can afford to go touring across the country just to talk about pulps in the hopes that other people are going to save that. 
I, and, and I think that's my fear, even, even as I throw out a suggestion like this. I, I think that it would probably involve a level of commitment by a number of people active in the hobby that probably none of us can afford, no. either monetarily or in terms of time, to make. We're a symposium to be drawn. The, the authorities that would have to be invited to speak would be the people that were here, and you would have to have a floor open for a debate, and whether it was published in journals to document it for the academic purposes. I mean, you would get the same uh, voices that you're, that you're hearing here. Uh, even though it may reach another audience, you'll get the same, the same people. We also have something of a split there, I think, in terms of when you talk about interest in the hobby, you get people who do buy stuff on eBay who don't travel at all to come to conventions. So we're both trying to promote the hobby itself, as well as we're trying to promote people coming to the gatherings to keep the convention sustained. But a lot of the guys who are buying online aren't going to waste money in traveling when they can just spend it on eBay. Now, that's a personal choice yeah. for a lot of them, but I don't think you're going to persuade them necessarily to fly over from Japan to come to a collection or to a convention like this when they can sit at home and spend that money on items, buying it online. So the web, I think, is a good tool to promote the hobby, and we are seeing collectors who are exclusively web-based, but we are also forced to try and promote the hobbies and the convention portion of things. But then I would bounce one further than that, and I would say, in terms of Polkon itself, how much advertising does Polkon do to the public who's not already aware of it? What is Polkon doing to promote the hobby of pulp collecting outside of its own? Not all that much that is readily visible. We need to take advantage of whatever web-related stuff, fanzines, and other things that can either be donated or gotten relatively cheaply to try and reach a wider audience. And I think that's one of the things that all of the shows are faced with looking at. You've got a limited budget to work with, but you've got to try and maximize getting new people in so that there's a bigger budget to work with. All right, on that note, we're going to throw it open to questions. We've only got about 10 minutes or so. I, I would ask any of you who have questions or statements or suggestions to please keep them brief so we can get as many people as we can in, in few. Jack, you had your hand up first. Okay, get back to what you were talking about here. John Benson talked about magazines, uh, pulps and that, per se. In the Pittsburgh area, which he knows about, in a 100-mile radius, I would say there are close to 250,000 pulps, comic books, it's never even... Come out. Now, let's go to eBay for you guys. You cannot do anything on eBay until you guys learn to clean them up. When a guy sells a book on eBay, it's, it's like he said, lesbian. You've got to state what you're selling. It's not a pulp. Pick, click it down, and there's small slicks. Pulp magazine for weird tales, dots, and you know that. So you've got to clean up eBay first before you're going to do anything. And you're never going to do that. There, I think, part of the but problem is... Wait a minute now. Here's another switch, too. You're also selling movies and stuff like that. You've got the shadow on and stuff. It's selling all the time. Uh, and your uh, ones that are connected there, you can always put a little thing in at the end like they do with the commercials you know for the new movies. You can do it that way, too. I think part of the trouble there, though, is a lot of the selling that goes on on eBay are people who are not really core pulp people, so their definitions leave a lot to be desired, their descriptions are not necessarily accurate. We, we can't combat people who are unaware, who are posting stuff that maybe is misleading. It's only really the people who know what they're doing that we can kind of work with there. Yeah. Let me tell you something a little bit further, though. This is my last statement. On academia, once you put it into a college, all your books, and the next guy that heads the pulp culture leaves and a new guy comes in, 
he may throw the whole throw the whole thing out. So what you have? I've donated thousands of books to the Hillman Library in Pittsburgh. There's not very many of them left, and they're all like this here. They all want to go on a trend, you know. And then somebody new comes in, and there goes your trend. So you got to attack this yeah. from, from, your, from your own ranks here now. Okay. Thanks, Jack. Neil, early. I think the uh, you know in terms of the future of the hobby, if you think about the hobby as what we're doing this weekend, I know it goes further than that. I think what we really need to do is promote our conventions. Build them up, advertise them, try and get more people to them. That's going to attract maybe the eBay guy who's you know, thinking it's better to spend the 200 bucks on books than to spend the 200 bucks on Greyhound bus. But he might, if he knows more about the shows and there's a local one, he comes out to it, he might be turned on and expand his, you know, interest in the hobby. I think, I think if we come, if we come do what we can do, we don't have much control over the supply and demand of pulps, but if we can do what we can do to make this, uh, the conventions more accessible, then that's a good point. I think one of the advantages to that is that if we get people coming in person, it's a little easier to educate them and get them excited about it. Yeah. It's always good to be amongst people who are equally excited. So I think that has a lot of value if we can get them out. Bill, you're next. Yeah, I just want to say, I didn't come to the pulp kind looking for pulps per se. I, I came to get out of the people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like, I was kind of isolated, and, and I found out about the convention, and, and it, it just seemed like an exciting thing to be with the other people that were doing what I was doing, and I, I think that's an approach you can take also. Oh, and, and I, that's a very important part of it, because there is a communal aspect to our hobby that's, that's you know, very ingratiating. I mean, you come here looking for pulps, and you, you go home with pulps and friends, in many cases lifelong friends. So that's a very important part. So we do want to attract people not just to come here and buy pulps and sell pulps and trade pulps, but who share our love for them, who are willing to discuss them, and who eventually, with that common thread of their fondness for the pulps, will get to know each other and get closer, and, and, and we are a real community. Yeah, sure. Yeah, David. How about hiring a professional to do your marketing? You know, my own guess is that, that uh, yeah, we, we probably just, no one single convention probably has the financial resources to be able to do that. That would be an obvious solution. But again, we, we do run the risk. If, if Even assuming there was that kind of money available to have a professional marketing approach, I think there's a, a, a valid concern that it would take the convention into kind of a, a businessy. I mean, I don't, nobody wants to see PulpCon turn into the San Diego convention, I, I, even if that was possible. I think that concern, though, to some extent, is irrelevant. I don't think you could possibly yeah. generate enough to yeah. overflood these conventions. Yeah, I yeah. Well, I feel I'm feeling ashamed and guilty. I came into Pulp secondhand with the Bantam Doc Savages and then the Pyramids Duranko Shadows. But these three gentlemen up here, they're putting out a product that's so wonderful. These, they call them facsimiles. But I found that you put out the black dog, the Harold Lamb, mm -hmm. that I discovered, and then I'm discovering some Hubbard books. You know, those, uh, those pulp stories. I gave them my address. I hope I don't get Scientology. But I mean, you, you gentlemen, you know, I'm sorry, I feel ashamed that I'm buying facsimiles, but you clear from that. And I'm 16 years old. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I love that. That's what the majority of us got into. And you've got those 
we can all hear you. Uh, I subscribe to fine, fine books and collectibles. I also subscribe to First Magazine. I did notice this year that PulpCon was advertising fine books and collectibles. My question is, you get a lot of good content in Blood and Thunder. I Thank don't you. see anything related to pulps ever. You missed our ad. In First, well, I'm not in First. No, you're right about that. First, you're, and in fine books and collectibles. You're, you're absolutely right about that. I, I have found, there's tie-ins. That's what got me. I'm absolutely. a collector. Yeah. But it's the tie-ins from pulps to other authors I collect in book form that brought me here. I agree 100%. There, there hasn't been the kind of outreach to the book community, and, and I know, because I, I've collected hardcover books, too. In the mystery fields, in the science fiction fields, there are people who have a general interest in pulp. Now, in the mystery field, that may only go as far as Hammett and Chandler and maybe Cornell Woolrich. In the science fiction field, it, it may be a little broader. But, yes, I do believe that there are people out there who, who might well come. You know, mystery collectors who normally go to BoucherCon, they could possibly be persuaded to come to PulpCon if they, if they knew about it. The key, though, is not advertising PulpCon. The key is some of you people that have that broad knowledge write an article that relates a hardback author to their start in the pulps. Okay. And first, for instance, takes that kind of information. If you can get the history right. of it and you show some of the pictures of the we, pulp. We first have done some articles on pulps. We have tried to do that to some extent. Fine books, which used to be OP magazine, had a pulp-related article on it, a couple of pulp-related articles, and was glad to see it, which we've supported them with various materials. It's not something that they're willing to do all the time, but we do try and do it. But it is a valid point, yes. Yeah, it yeah, and it is, it is something that we should do. Let's try and get a few more comments in quick before we... Michelle? Uh, I just want to say, as the senior advisor of the Overstreet Price Guide and the columns for Comic Buyers Guide, probably the only person in America that has a foot in both sides, as well as being a professional book scout. And I can tell you right now, the biggest problem with pulps is very simple. There aren't enough of them. And also, there's not enough money in pulp hobby. There are literally thousands of people who spend thousands and thousands of dollars a year on comic books. And that's a fact. Not me, but it's a fact. And the, the comic books that are expensive are so much more expensive, even though they're more available than pulps, that pulps are not investable the way comic books are. You know, in the same kind, you can't spend a hundred thousand dollars on a pulp and expect it to triple in five years. I think I can safely say, though, I don't think we'd want to attract the kind of person no, who would invest a hundred thousand dollars for a slab pulp. I, I mean, that's yeah. I don't either. I, I can't yeah. stand it. I'm, yeah. I'm from the old school. Yeah. But the problem is, I'm the one who convinced Overstreet to go down on yeah. the values. You know, because the, the other problem we have is that comic books. You know, people who like romance comics, one of my specialties, humor comics, another specialty, the oddball, low value, under five and ten dollar comic books are far more prevalent at showing up and collecting these things. In pulps, very few people collect low value pulps. And those low value pulps, I speak from experience with about five thousand are not available. Talk about patience. It's taken me over 30 years to build some of these runs. And that's the problem. You cannot find pulps. Michelle, that's because there are fewer and fewer dealers right. that will bring 
material like that. And there are so many more dealers, and I think it started with the comic industry, that, you know, these people who only deal in golden age, you know, I don't want a comic on my stand that it's not worth more than five, you know, less than $5,000. There are some people, you know, I think that's getting to the point where Paul dealing, I, nothing less than $10. Yeah, but I mean, all I'm saying is that comic book people, you know, the reason it's still so vibrant is I'm not saying it'll stay this way for 50 years, okay. but the reason it's so surprising is that you can literally go to a comic book convention. I've gone to comic book conventions in the last 10 years where I bought 200 Golden Age comics for less than $1,000. Now, that's very hard to do in pulps yeah. because you, A, can't find enough of them, and B, there aren't very many cheap pulps that are considered collectible. Unfortunately, we're going to have to cut it off here. We have a very long auction underway. But I just want to say that um, all of us, to a certain extent, have to try and do what we can do. I'm, I, I hope that nobody came hoping that we had answers that we could look into a crystal ball and come up with a, a magic formula to keep the hobby going and to keep it vibrant and, and uh, interesting. We're, we're, I guess we're going we're gonna to have to keep working on it, and all of us are going to have to think of ways to make the conventions more appealing, to try and reach people we haven't, we haven't reached before. And, and, and to that extent, you're all part of that process. We're all part of that process. So I want to thank you very much for attending the panel. This is a subject I'm sure we'll be revisiting in the years to come. And, um, well, that's it. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.